there is so much out there to get mad about. Social injustices, class warfare, continued colonization, the act of destruction of our planet by those focused on profits and not people. We can find it overwhelming at times. The good news is there are equally as many, if not more, stories of people coming together and rising up against the forces at play. So the creators of Blueprints of Disruption have added a new weekly segment, Ravel Rants, where we will unpack the stories that have us most riled up, share calls to action, and most importantly, celebrate resistance. Charge the people a dollar and a half just to see them. Don't it always seem to go that you don't know what you've got till it's gone? They pay fair advice, put up a parking lot. All right, if you're paying attention to Ontario politics, it's all about the green belt right now. So Santiago and I are going to give you the rundown of one of the dirtiest deeds done in Ontario politics. And uh, we're going to explain why everyone in Ontario is just right pissed off. Okay, so in response to decades of uncontrolled sprawl from the city's core, that's greater Toronto area, Hamilton, the McGuinty government, that's a liberal government in 2005, enacted the Greenbelt Act. This was set to protect 2 million acres of the most precious green space in southern Ontario. And it essentially does form a belt around the greater Toronto area, Hamilton, Niagara. And then it has a stretch that runs north, uh, protecting key waterways. It was supposed to protect them from development, from that sprawl. Right. Population growth was happening and there was really only one way to make sure they didn't pave over paradise and build a parking lot. So but this act did not come without resistance. You know, it sounds like a, just a no brainer. Right. But there was actually a lot of resistance. So I read a great article from TVO and they outlined some of the same players that we're hearing with the most recent announcement by the Auditor General. Because what Ford has done, Premier Ford now in the PC government, has taken huge swaths of the Greenbelt out and set them aside for his most favorite developers. We're going to get into the details of that dirty deed, but I think we got to set, still set the sage here because we are seeing those key players revisit. Folks got to remember... Part of the liberal election promises were to build on the Oak Ridges moraine. And as we, if you've listened to our Developers Democracy episode, you know there is almost no politician out there who doesn't take money from developers for their campaigns. So, you know, Silvio de Gasparis, you're going to hear his name again. He's a big part of this most recent deal. He claims he had made deals with McGinty to leave his land untouched, not part of the Greenbelt Act. He put up a huge stink, tried to sue the Liberal government. Farmers put up a big stink saying, you know, their retirement rests on being able to sell their land one day to developers. 
I'm not going to hate on farmers, but if that's your retirement plan, I'm sorry, we have to make legislation against it because selling our farmland to developers is really not an option either. So there was real resistance. I mean, farmers were protesting outside Queens Park. There was road blockades set up by everyone's favorite uh, former MPP, Randy Hillier. John Tory was also pretty vocal against it. Santiago, you grew up in the Oak Ridges Moraine. There was fierce, like the liberals, although they made that promise, they faced fierce resistance to trying to develop on that parcel of land. Parcel. It's huge. Yeah, yeah. I I grew up in not just the Oak Ridges Moraine, but the actual unincorporated town of Oak Ridges, which is uh, situated uh, on two um, very important lakes in the region, Lake Wilcox and Bond Lake. I grew up a short walk from between both of those lakes. And and as long as I can remember, um, people have been, well, when I say people, the government of Richmond Hill and the developers that uh, fund their campaigns have been trying to peel back restrictions on that land to develop in, in the forest. And they, they've been quite successful at that, even though uh, as long as I can remember... The people of Oak Ridges have been advocating against this, have been trying to get them to not develop on the land. Because to do it, they had to cut down significant amount of forest, and they have cut down significant amount of forest, forest that I grew up running around in as a kid. Um, they just have been doing that for as long as I can remember, regardless of whether or not that was the will of the people. Because the land there is quite valuable. Lots of money to be made there. For folks that don't live in the area, like this is your suburbs of Toronto and generally very affluent areas yeah, already. Yeah, This, so like Oak Ridge specifically, which is between Aurora and Richmond Hill. I mean, technically it's a part of Richmond Hill and, and just to the east of King City. Uh, it runs along Young Street. It used to be, because of those lakes, it used to be kind of a, a cottage country. And on, on the road that runs along the lake, you actually see some quite ridiculous houses that look like castles and things. Great places to go trick-or-treating, by the way. You used to have, like, the full-size uh, chocolate bars. <laughs> but um, this land has always been protected, as long as I can remember. As long as I've been there, at least. And I think I, 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 think I moved there, actually, around the time when the Oak Ridges Moraine was first introduced and there's a lot of endangered species there uh, one of my favorite being the jefferson salamander which is just the derpiest little looking salamander in the world that... you'll see him on our cover art <laughs> they close down parts of like leslie road and stuville road some of the roads in the area they, they close them down i think it's the first rainfall of the spring so that they can cross from where they uh from where they sleep underground to like their mating grounds. So they, and, and they had to cross over the road. So they close down the road so they don't get run over. But I've heard of turtle crossings, never salamander crossings, but I, I would stop my car for these guys. They're pretty cute. It, it's amazing. And well, there's so many endangered species there. And, and also the water that, that runs through there, it runs down into, into Lake Ontario. It feeds into the Humber river and it's, it's all it's all connected. It's a part of what we have of of an ecosystem, and it's an incredibly important 
place and and you know like just yesterday uh from when we're recording this i was just flying back to toronto i was just in northern ontario for the week and you know you can see as you're as you're flying as you're coming down like south of lake simcoe you see like the farmlands the suburbs and you can see the forest of the oak ridges moraine is the only real greenery left you know it's the only it's it's what little we have for for this area and you also see how much ridiculous amounts of land that aren't the oak ridges moraine and the green belt there is to develop on and there's no real reason except for the fact that because this land hasn't been touched, it is quite valuable for them to develop on, especially in places like Oak Ridges, which are situated between GO stations and, and on Young Street and, and beside lakes, which you don't get a lot of. Like, of course, they want to build there. You want to know something really ironic? These developers, one of the arguments that they used when they were trying to create the green belts when the liberals were setting aside some of their precious land uh, to conserve, one of their arguments was if you do that, it'll actually raise prices of the homes in the area. They're talking like they don't own some of those homes themselves. And surely that is what happened. But as though is that something that that would be a concern to developers. Uh, Again, it was parroted by the PC party at the time, but and give it's me already a break like, like raise the home values for what like i mean when because when, you're going to have a really expensive home if you are able to have it with abutting conserved land that's green space that's but, but that's, that's what i like in oak ridge like my mom she still has a home in in oak ridges you know when, when we first it was the first home that we got in, in canada like at first we lived in toronto um, renting apartments and then move to the suburbs as you know people do uh, for some reason and I, I, I think it was it was less than three hundred thousand dollars this home when when they bought it and now I think it's over a million dollars you know it's already like but part of that appeal is because it's surrounded by green space and developers just tried to sell that as some sort of negative for the people in general because um, they're always concerned about affordable housing right? Turns out like only 10% of this green deal, this green belt deal, only 10% would even be considered for affordable housing. And I think it turned out to be like just a meager, meager amount of units. So the idea that any of this was was going to solve a housing crisis, but we haven't quite we haven't quite got there yet. No, and and, and also I, I got to mention just because like, again, I grew up in these areas these houses like there's so many just massive houses but there's very few apartment building complexes even on major roads like only recently have we begun to see um uh, there's an apartment building going up in oak ridges right on young street and uh, king road that that that's obviously something that should be there but there's been very little mid-rise high-rise development along those major corridors that is an easy solution these issues and i can guarantee you that there is a lot of land that is already not nature that's not forest that is not greenbelt land that can be developed on in those areas to build more housing on well the auditor general reports back that absolutely and again like santiago mentions this before we started recording and folks chimed in on me on tiktok we already knew this you know as i created the video for the 
AG's report. Yes, environmentalist groups have been screaming all of this from the rooftop for a long time. Municipalities have even been pushing back and telling us the province has already set aside land to meet the targets that they set for housing. Right. They have X amount of houses that they wanted to get done and they have already that land was already there. The municipalities were not needing land. They need money for public housing. That's off the table here for the PC government. But yeah, any kind of rebuttal coming from Premier Ford that this was a a housing crisis response is just absolute malarkey. You talked about the Oak Ridges and the importance of it and the waterways that are protected. I grew up in Scarborough as well. A big part of the Rouge is set to be, and Dufferin's Creek, set to be removed from the green belt. And when you're talking about limited green space, Scarborough and Pickering, like that, it kind of separates the two there, encompasses the two almost. But that there's very few forested areas with rivers that run through them that the folks in the city can actually experience. And I grew, I spent a lot of time down at that Rouge River, and the idea that there would be houses there instead is just absolutely horrifying to me. But there's just so many ironies in telling this story because back when they created the Green Belt, that is just so obvious, like these are Canadian heritage environment lands, like undisputed by most, that scientifically proven to be important lands to protect. Back in 2005, the PCs were screaming from the rooftop, show me the science, Santiago. We've heard this before. They wanted to see the science. Tim Hudak accused the premier of sitting with a green magic marker and just arbitrarily shading things in to protect without any kind of environmental assessment or scientific you know, need. And it's absolutely ironic because that's exactly what has happened in its removal. Not even arbitrary. I wish it had been arbitrary. It would have been a little bit better. What Premier Ford has done, and the Auditor General has confirmed this, is he allowed developers to handpick exactly which parcels of land that they wanted that they could make the most amount of money off. We know that's at least $8.3 billion to be made just on these deals alone. And there's just so many layers to this. Like, now that we've set a little bit of the stage on the political backlash of creating the Green Belt, what are we at? My math is so bad. How many years later? 18 years later maybe six years after Ford made promises not to touch the green belt. And this report from the auditor general comes out. I I know you were out of town, Santiago, but were you hearing this trickle in? I I, I saw, (laughs) I saw people posting uh, stories about it on their Instagrams angry, but that's how I found out that it happened. Um, I think where, where I was at, people weren't exactly talking about it, but I think that's because, um, they have, I was in Northern Ontario where there is a lot of other issues <laughs> to, to talk about than the, of their own lands being destroyed rather than the lands up here, but, um, or down here, I guess I should say. But I mean, obviously when I heard about this, my first reaction is, yeah, we knew this. We talked about this on the show. 
Like we obviously knew that this was happening. And then, and, and, and one of the first things I was hearing was people were calling on the resignation of Doug Ford over this. God, why is that everybody's first response? Why does everyone think it's like a single person's fault and can be solved by a cabinet shuffle? I'm so sorry yeah, I like, cut you off. That was so frustrating. <laughs> no, no, no. And like, don't get me wrong. Like, it would be nice to get rid of Doug Ford. Of course, it's not going to solve the issues. And we can see that like this runs deep. And now he's trying to redirect this to blame the the chief of staff. And uh, so that the blame's not on himself. But really, this is what, what's really scary about this is just the fact that he doesn't actually have to like this is this is what this is is blatant corruption. Right. Like, let's be clear about what the word is anywhere else in the world. They would call this corruption. Let's in make Colombia, the case for that, though. You know, like, let's make the case for that, because it's not just any developers that we're talking about. It's a very small amount of developers that are set to get these very, this 15 very specific parcels of land. And they're the same developers that help fund Ontario Proud. So I kind of missed a step in my story there. And in terms of the history of the Greenbelt, so, you know, Silvio de Gasparis and friends and developers that lost out on opportunities to build on the green belt space when the liberals started protecting those lands. Well, they didn't just give up people. That man was set to lose $240 million. Lose, not make $240 million at the time. So they stuck around. They created what we all know now as Ontario proud. They may not have created it, but Nora Loretto did a great piece I'll link it in the show notes like we do almost every reference we make where she's dug into exactly who funded Ontario Proud. Now, for those who don't know what Ontario Proud is, it's a third party advertiser, which is a designation that allows you to post election ads to almost participate in elections just without candidates. Right. So you have messaging, postering, you can leaflet and there are almost there are no spending limits. There are time constraints on when this can happen, but there are no spending limits and no donation limits. So thankfully, we know who donated to them. Nora even maps them out in her piece where we're talking about right in the core in Toronto and in Vaughan. And the names are all the same. They're all in the family. They're all in the developer business. And it's not a grassroots organization at all. No. These are the same people. Well, the same technique was used when the Greenbelt was being formed. They were using kind of really tricky tactics, like using names with the Greenbelt in them to make people think it was a, an environmental group. And really, it was against the creation of the Greenbelt. And so they've done this with Ontario Proud, right? And they really did influence the election. If folks remember when Kathleen Wynne was voted out, they went hard. There were lawn signs all over the place. Like, these were players in the campaign. And so the developers, they got the government that they wanted. They made massive donations to the campaigns as well as funding Ontario Proud, and they ended up getting Ford into office. I would imagine they played a part in getting him to be leader of the PC party as well. That's my guess. I don't imagine they leave that game to chance either. So Ford gets in there, 
And one of the big excuses that they have around this Greenbelt Act is the urgency. Three weeks, Santiago, like 18 years of protected land. And they took three weeks to figure out exactly which lands they could remove. And a reminder that Ford campaign, like he promised that he wouldn't touch the Greenbelt. That was a whole thing. That, and that was a really big deal. And... Of course, we don't take any promises politicians make serious, but like when people are making their decisions and he's promising not to touch the green belt and now he goes back on it. I mean, you need a really, you need like a really, really good reason. And of course, there isn't a really good reason whatsoever. Not and to you. To no. him, there is. No. And, and, and like I was saying, like. I'm used to when stuff like this happens in, in Colombia, for example, that everyone screams corruption, that this is corruption. Here, like, we're not, we're not being as aggressive with that word as we should be, because that, that is what it is. And, and there's not, like, as of right now, it's not looking like there's going to be any consequences to it. Like, okay, he got caught, you know, that, that's what this, this report, it's, it's pretty clear. And the way that journalists are treating the story is, you got caught. I would say, I agree with you with the media. They have been very pointed in their questions. You know, why are you lying? They are immediately refuting his talking points with facts. And they are using some of the language that I think we should be using. But that report, I blame the Auditor General for the reason people's responses are tempered like folks are are upset uh but i agree with you not to the level that they should be but if you look she made 15 recommendations and she let two interviews over all of these other facts like and we're going to continue to share points with you folks just to make you understand how awful this is for folks who haven't heard it already but 15 recommendations and when you read through them, they are essentially just saying, do better next time. Have a clear, because she interviews Premier Ford and she interviews Housing Minister Steve Clark. And they both tell her they had no idea what this chief of staff was doing. They had no idea how he was selecting parcels of land, who he was talking to, what criteria were being dropped. Because remember, the AG tells us that any environmental criteria that got in the way was dropped. Any confidentiality requirements that were slowing down the process, they were dropped because they had a three-week window. Why? Because developers were putting pressure on these folks. Now, there's more to get into about this chief of staff. Um, we'll see what we can do with that. But her recommendations all give so much weight to those two interviews with Ford and Clark. Right. It's like, OK, well, you didn't know what was going on. So clean up your chain of command, add layers of accountability, not specific, just really broad, be more accountable. And so Ford's been able to completely craft his response around these shit recommendations saying, sure, I'll adopt 14 out of the 15 because they only say do better next time. The next time you're carving up the green belt, make sure you do better. And he was like, sure, yeah, no problem. We got that. We, we felt that slap on the wrist. The only one recommendation he's refused to implement is to revisit the selection process that we know is so corrupt. 
So the he refuses. There is no recourse unless there's political pressure. Uh, folks are talking about calling on the OPP. Please let me refer you back to our episode on Doug's police pipeline. He has increased funding for the OPP incredibly. He has made it easier for them to to get into police college. He has changed the rules on selection of the OPP commissioner. He is in tight with the OPP. And they are saying they're waiting for more evidence, apparently an auditor general report, and all the details that we got from it are not enough evidence for them. They they are waiting for more to just, like, what, come into them? I'm not sure. But folks that are calling for, like, criminal charges and stuff like that, I think it's ironic. Why do we always go to a police solution when we're the same folks calling to defund the police? These are not the solutions. I mean, put them in jail. If the jail's there, fine, if, if that's what you want. But that's not going to solve shit. Because when you're talking about Ontario Proud and you're talking about how deep developers are in this, it doesn't matter who goes to jail right now. <laughs> you have to change the system that allows them to operate in this way. You have to stop the decommodification of shelter. Because nobody's going to stop doing what they're doing when they've got $8.4 billion on the line. They will kill people. I have no doubt. Like, they no amount of jail time for a single politician or a chief of staff is going to be any kind of deterrent to stopping this from happening again. These folks don't operate like that. And that's why the scapegoating's going on, right? So the lowest person can pay the price. I, and I want to be clear about some of the things that happen in this process, just because it's just so absurd, you know? Like, we, we the, the Auditor General found that, that there was regular emails being deleted throughout this process. Uh, found that Emails were being sent from personal emails to to the actual uh, government emails uh, that they were being directly forwarded. That um, which is in violation of all kinds of security uh, regulations. Um, that there was literal copy and pasted text from lobbyists um, that was used in in these reports. Which again, we see that happen. We see that happen in the states all the time, where you have bills that that uh, make it to the house that are literally copy and pasted from lobbyists. And again, we know what that is there. We know what that is here. It's corruption. Lobbyists should not be writing laws or making decisions. Meanwhile, when this was going on earlier, Doug Ford was claiming that all of this that he, you know, he was saying, yeah, we directly were looking at this land. You know, we made uh, decisions because this land is up against communities and yada yada. Like he was trying to argue that oh, he was very involved and and that that they were very careful in their selection process. Now we're seeing that they didn't actually review. Um, most of it, that most of it was just like, just went ahead without any sort of process whatsoever, right? So he's going to be claiming all kinds of things that go directly in contradiction to what he was saying earlier, before all of this came out. For them to get away with this is just them laughing in our face. Depends on what you think getting away with it is. There will be some political repercussions for this as long as like pressure continues. But one of the things that I found really shady and like <laughs> I think we'll just keep coming up with these like as I go through my notes it's just you get more and more enraged when the auditor general talked about the duty to consult first nations I mean it doesn't surprise me that they didn't their attitude around the ring of fires like we're going to do whatever we want to do here's a memo like just get on board or get out of the way is pretty much their approach to everything so we know that they didn't do that with which the Greenbelt Act requires them to do. It's not just like, oh, you know, to save face, to 
look like you're working towards reconciliation, you should have asked First Nations, Indigenous groups. It's actually in the green belt that they should have done it and they didn't. But also public consultation. Everyone's talking about protecting our democracy. Public consultation is a big part of creating any act and, and doing almost anything. Like it's it's part of the process. And so they know this. They know they have to at least put up the facade that they're doing this. But she reports back that they were putting like incorrect and wrong dates or locations and information up on the website so that people couldn't easily contribute. And then they got about still 35,000 submissions and the majority of them, the large majority of them were negative, but not one revision was was made. So you had massive outcry from groups like Environmental Defense Environment Hamilton, Lead Now, the Greenbelt Guardians, Greenbelt Promise, Environment Hamilton. I know I'm probably leaving people out, but they have been yelling all of this from the rooftop as it's happened, as they've uncovered this. But hearing some of these details, I think all summarized together, was is just enraging. And this chief of staff... Santiago, you just talked about like the U.S., how we know, especially if you watch the documentary, documentary 13, just how much corporations write our legislation. This this chief of staff has now been awarded a place of honor. Uh, he's the he's now the head of the Ontario Home Builders Association. And there's footage of him on TikTok going around at one of their shindigs talking about how he and the developers that he has been working with wrote the legislation around it. How they were, you know, they're not shy about saying that they absolutely dictated what was going to happen to our greenbelt. People that just pave over areas and build $1.5 million homes, get to decide which lands were going to be protected and which were not. Like, that's absurd. That's criminal. That is criminal. But our response has to be so much more than calling in the OPP. I don't really know what the response should be other than not allowing a single bit of that land to be pushed ahead and developed if they're going to try and develop it like that needs to if we let that happen that's just it's already happening it's already happening i've had reports back from people that work with the green belt guardians and what they're trying to do or have done is created a network of people i wish i'd called them on here to to give a first-hand account but they have folks residents nearby volunteers that are monitoring the lands and they're talking about movement of equipment into Jeffrey's Creek. They're talking about drilling and testing that's happening that would precede development. So again, it's it's like we keep repeating history. One of the arguments used against the Greenbelt was there was already some infrastructure on those lands that would not be needed, that people had wasted money building some bits of infrastructure, fucking laying pipe or something, you know, and all of that would go to waste if you then protected the land. They're going to try to revisit these same arguments. We can't revisit these parcels of land. They've already started doing X and this, and then we'd have to pay them out. And you know what I mean? Like, this isn't... Too bad. These 
these people are counting their chickens already. They are cutting the chicken up and frying it. Like they, to them, it's a done deal. And I don't think Ford can backtrack on this because of the promises that they've probably made with developers. Like this is shady shit. This is his chief of staff or the housing chief of staff going to a dinner with developers and being handed an envelope that showed him which parcels of land to remove from the green belt. And he took that back with him and just made it made it happen. No matter what got on his in his way, he made it happen. One thing that, you know, it's a trap that we fall into, I fall into all the time is, you know, we're holding Doug Ford accountable, the PCs accountable. These fucking developers, you know, like they shouldn't be allowed to to continue existing as as companies. I mean, they they are the ones at the end of the day who are responsible for the corrupt. They're the ones actively employing the corruption. They're the ones buying off our governments and they're the ones that are constantly buying off municipal elections you know we talked about this back when when the the municipal elections were happening earlier was it last year oh god my memory but whenever that was yeah in october right we were talking about that back then you know we know the power that developer money has in our municipal politics and we always blame the politicians but at some point we also have to hold these corporations accountable and just also just realize that like that 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 is a system and as long as like these politicians they they, they get to stick around as long as they're useful but these companies they, they don't have four year elections you know get rid of Doug Ford and they'll just bribe the next person. Oh, no. Corporations are people, Santiago. You can't take away their democratic right to thrive and profit. It's written into our constitution somewhere, I'm sure. But, you know, there's a lot of people that are looking to municipalities to kind of stop this, right? Because Ford, I don't know what you got to do to get that man to backtrack on stuff because the green belt has been something else, right? It's just been this battlefield of pushback. And finally, he's like, it was like he didn't care what the political fallout would have been. He had to give them that land. 8. Now, three billion will do that <laughs> because folks need to remember. Halfway through his last mandate, he did try to do this. Right, he tried to carve up the green belt. He tried to remove protections and the environmental backlash from groups, grassroots groups, the same groups we mentioned earlier, was massive. We're talking billboards, massive actions, massive mailing, emailing petition campaigns i mean the response was huge they really did coalesce around this issue in ontario and they made him backtrack but a few years went by and i think these developers just leaned on them in the most intense ways and they had they had to get this done and santiago was right like developer money runs deep in municipal politics so although folks have suggested that you know, municipalities can stall on rezoning. They can stall on approving developments. That does come down to the municipal government. Those same people won their campaigns off the same developer money. I hate to be like a Debbie Downer always, but yeah, looking to those people to champion against a force as great as developers, I, people just don't realize what kind of impact that they have in our democracy. I'll link back the episode developers democracy because we really get into the numbers and, you know, we didn't do that work. We leaned on some of the work that people had done previous to us, but it really breaks down just how many politicians out there take their money from these same people who have been influencing Ontario politics for years just to get this land. 8.3 billion is, is I think the tip of the iceberg, what they have to make off this. 
No, and then you start thinking also about like um, the uh, Ontario Place proposal, right? Um, what they're doing there, and you know, like everywhere you look, and, and these are these are high profile. The Green Belt Ontario Place that's that's high profile because it's places that people they know about, they care about, they want to protect, right? Can't imagine how much land that like is just general land. Um, things like these happen all the time and we, we don't realize it because it's not high profile, right? And and I, I struggle to think of anybody, any industry or uh, that has more of an influence on our politics than the developers. And then, and then when you look at the fact that we're in a nationwide uh, housing crisis right now, it, it also serves, not that we need a reminder, and I know on this show we all know, but like it, it serves as an absolute indictment of the idea of, of capitalism as a solution to these issues. Because if the developers already get whatever they want from the government and we're still unable to build enough housing or, or, and, and much less build enough affordable housing, then it's very clear that these market forces, that these corporations, they're not going to solve these issues. So who is going to solve these issues? Right? Because I they can't us, have us. any That's more That's always control. the same answer yeah. for me. Us. But what I mean to say is like they can't have any more control over our politics than they have right now. Like it is scary how much influence they have over everything. And look at the consequences of it. And I mean we live Canada is the second largest country in the world and it is one of the least population density places in the world and and uh, another anecdote i mean i'm originally like i mentioned i'm from uh, i grew up in oak ridges but i'm originally from bogota colombia which is a a city that is the second highest altitude city in the world and it's on a plateau surrounded by mountains i think it's like 2500 meters or something like that up uh, and so being surrounded by mountains you have very limited amount of space that you can build you can only build so far out, you know, and it's a city of over 8 million people now. And it used to be houses back in the day, but now the city is entirely buildings. Why? Because that's what you need to do to be able to fit the people there. Build up, they not un- out. Yeah, they had to build up. So what did they do? They built up. And it would be a functioning city if we actually... I mean, talk about corruption. We haven't been able to build a subway or any reliable public transportation in the entire time of its existence because of corrupt politicians. But the point being that, like, with those physical barriers, it forced them to build up. But here we still rely on this concept of suburban sprawl as if that's going to solve our issues when we know that it costs twice as much uh, to fund the services that are needed in areas of suburban sprawl than it is in, in urban centers. We know how much more expensive it is. People already can't afford the cost of living. Like, how exactly are we funding suburban sprawl? We can't afford suburban sprawl. That is not the solution. We need to build up. So there is no land anywhere. We've already said this, but there's no land anywhere that needs to be redeveloped. I I mean, that needs to be rezoned or uh, for any protected land, any forest land, any land that doesn't already have anything on it. I mean, I look around Toronto and this is a glorified suburb. 
There's houses everywhere. We can fit more people here if we need to fit people. And other country, other cities around the world, because so many cities around the world used to look like Toronto, used to have a bunch of houses. What do they do? Their population grows. They tear down some of those houses and they build buildings because that's what a city does when it grows. That's politically difficult in the city with nimbyism and even progressive councillors are really resistant to getting those housing developments in their own ward because yeah there's always just so much backlash even low rises there's there's parts of, in the city of toronto where organized grassroots movements against low rises from the residents and it's just well what do you want people to do and the green belt was supposed to be that physical barrier you know bogota's mountains because you can't rely on the goodwill of developers to leave some areas pristine or to understand the limits that sprawl has to have on it. And, you know, you talked about holding the companies accountable because I agree with you, like the developers, the existence of the commodification of shelter, right? Making money off of make, making money off of the roof that we put over our heads, like the most basic human element, like shelter, right? Like if you think about it, it's like that's your, just your shelter. People are making billions and billions and billions of dollars over determining what that looks like, how much it costs, where it goes. And that's so immoral. People really need to start absorbing that. It's not right. It's not right to own multiple properties because you know, Ford's trying to use this whole, we need more houses. We need more space to build more houses. More $1.5 million houses certainly is not the solution. Public housing is the solution. And you can't just find these companies either. So like, what do you mean by holding them accountable, Santiago? Like in our system, that would probably be maybe criminal charges at like, that would be an impossibility under our system. But I mean, technically criminal charges, fines, Maybe even dissolvement. I'm not sure. I'm not a, like a lawyer in this area, but even that wouldn't satisfy me because you would just get another TAC, another TACC, which is like one of the huge companies involved in this. You would just get one rising up in its place who would eventually use same tactics or adapt and still essentially be pricing people out of shelter and getting and getting subsidized for it while they're at it. And. And, and and let me let me tell you something here because like I'm just looking around my apartment right now and 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 remembering that you know here in Parkdale on on there's a street Jamison Avenue runs from Lakeshore to Queen Street the entire street is mid-rise buildings like nine-story ten-story buildings this was built back in the 60s or so these buildings most of them I believe and the layout of these apartments. You got living room, kitchen, bedrooms. Like it, it makes sense. It's livable. I have seen condos. I've seen like I had a friend who lives in the Macy Tower, who lived recently moved to Montreal, who lived in the Macy Tower, a giant building that they built um, on Young Street uh, near Young and Dundas, where the layout of his apartment was absurd and not usable. You know, we would go over there. It'd be hard for friends to gather there because. 
it didn't really have any sort of existing living room. The bedroom was one of those fake bedrooms that doesn't actually have a window that has like, you know, the, the corner sliding doors, you know. And that's in a, those giant condo buildings. I used to live at King and Bathurst. And <laughs> I mean, I, I liked my apartment, but the layout was a little bit absurd. And even that was a bit of an older building. And, and there were apartments there that are usable. But I remember when I was going around looking at apartments in the city and all the new areas and all those new buildings that they're building, they're built to maximize the unit space. Like it, it, absurd, not really livable for most people. So my point being is that we had the answers in the 60s for how to actually build density in the city that that wouldn't overcrowd any one particular area that that was usable livable when when i see jameson this street looks alive you know this street is alive with culture of people the school on jameson people gather around there you see uh, old people sitting on benches talking to each other you see community events happening there this street is alive we have the yards that I still think should be used for community gardens at some point, and we can get there. But my point being is that we have the answers, and this is the only street of its kind in the entire city of Toronto. There's no other street that's entirely buildings like this. Not one single street in the city of Toronto that is entirely mid-rise buildings. Why? Why is that the case? Because this is a way that people can live in apartments that feel like homes. In places that are, bit, are, are are laid out in a way that is actually logical. That's not about maximizing the amount of units in a building. But it's actually somewhere where people can live. Where you can go spend time in, uh, on your balcony. You know, when I moved into the balcony, the neighbor across the street saw that I was moving in. And they gave me a free sofa. They didn't even know me. Why? Because there's a sense of community here. And people look after each other. Because we can... It, it's built for connection. Everything... <laughs> In, in the new buildings is built for disconnection. So you see these developers. And at the end of the day, like what, what we're talking about here with these developers, they're not going to not make money from not building on the green belt. They just want to make as much fucking money as possible. They want to squeeze every last drop. And that's what they do when they build buildings in the city. And that's why people hate these high rises too. They hate them because they're not places where people can live. Not comfortably unless you spend money on like a $2 million luxury condo. Then maybe you can live comfortably. But most of these units, units that I see going for five, six hundred thousand dollars, they're not somewhere that people can live for a sustainable period of time because they're built in the most absolutely ridiculous way possible. So my point Especially being is families. These, yeah. These developers do not have the interests of people at heart. They're not building a city where you can live in. I remember in Colombia, like these buildings, you go to it, they feel like houses, these apartments. You know, you have houses that have multiple, uh, you have apartments that are affordable that have multiple stories in them you know that are laid out like huge like you have in so many buildings you see the case where you have four apartments per floor four right and each one takes up like a corner and it's built like a house it's built like a house and by doing that kind of density you know you're not crowding places but you're allowing the like Instead of having homes, you could do that on all of these roads and you could have it so that the city still functions, so the city still flows, but you could house everybody and you can meet all of these needs because this is a massive amount of land here in, in, in the, the six, like the, it, amongst the boroughs. We have so much land and we can build and then connect it all by public transport and have a functioning city. Go look at pictures. Somebody, please pull up an aerial picture of the city of Barcelona. Please, because that entire city is built with mid-rise buildings. The entire city. And I've been there. That is a functioning city. 
Like that is that, that isn't unique works. either. That is very no. very common in in Europe. And I hear what you're saying. Like even when we get developers to build up, they build up in the most ridiculous ways. And that goes to your earlier comment when you're like, I don't know why we moved to the suburbs because it's really hard to raise a family in the city. If you need an apartment, it's hard to find an apartment that can fit a family. Condos are very small. Like the layouts are ridiculous. Like you said, like being able to house many kids in an apartment is not ideal. And so you're priced out. You need a house because there are no apartments like you described. Like they're not the amount of apartments what we need that you can live in. So people's idea of living in a dense community is in these awful new buildings that they're seeing where they're jammed in there. There's no services, one laundry room for everyone and no green space around it. It's not good living. And so no wonder people aren't open to the idea of taking the fucking bridal path, rezoning that shit and building up, but not up. We're not talking about like 24 floor skyscrapers all made of glass, you know, like, yeah, I, I know the neighborhood you're talking about and I can completely picture the kind of community that you described there. And yeah. And, and it's, and, and, and now like for the record, this community is struggling because all of these buildings got bought up by a couple of like, uh, the, 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 the management company, what, what are they called? landlord companies just whatever uh who then have been trying to price out all of the uh old tenants who lived here like the people who've been living here forever so they could raise the prices and like there's all kinds of issues here there's all and that's also not the solution that's the thing like we need to build it and then not give it to these corporate landlord companies to exploit and by the way one one quick little anecdote you know because i had to pay rent for the uh like the first time that like it's automatic rent and i have automatic payment set and it's supposed to be that if i pay on time on the first of the month that like they take five percent off the rent right but it's also i have it set up so that it's automatic so that it automatically comes out of my account i noticed that they didn't take the rent out until the second of the month automatically so that they i wouldn't get the discount and i just want to point out like that that's the kind of shady shit you know like little little things like that where it's like no the money was in my account you could have taken out the first that was the agreement you take it out the first instead you take it out the second and don't give me the five percent discount so like fuck you anyways point being like they, they also squeeze every like as long as these things are here to make profit off of they're trying to squeeze every dollar they possibly can out of you and it's completely absurd and and we cannot keep living like this we need to really redesign the way that we manage the places where people live their homes because this is not a place to live no and not just homes right this goes back again and again and again to our essential goods argument which is more than just food and shelter right it it encompasses so many things absolutely can't be driven by profit this is our anti-capitalist brand. You know, it absolutely can't be driven by profit. It doesn't make any sense, people. It doesn't even make good business sense. You can't accumulate wealth in the smallest amount of people and expect the, the lives of everyone else to get better. It doesn't work that way. And there are things that we need to protect that profit has no interest in. I had someone chirp back at me on TikTok going, you don't want these houses built. You figure out how to be homeless and live in the environment. They put environment in quotations. Like, I think they think the environment is just a place to go pitch their tent, to go take a walk. Like, there's really this disconnect on how important it is to protect our waterways, 
the animal species that live within them, the farmland, the wetlands, like how all of these are connected to our well-being. If you don't even give a shit about anything else, it does impact your daily lives. We thought the forest fire smoke would kind of lay into people that that reality or the fact that we can't find clean water easily, you know, outside of taps, that that's a thing of the past. And it's just so strange that those same people that understand that there is a housing crisis, that people need homes, are still allowing these profiteers to make these decisions. And they don't see anything wrong with it. They think those are the best people to be building houses. They build houses all the time. Look how good they are. They make billions of dollars. They must be good at it. And it's it's that disconnect, right? It's people really need to start looking at the system because this is going to upset forward voters, right? There will be people who vote conservatively that are upset about this, but they will look to non-systemic issues as the solution, they're going to go to the cops. <laughs> They're going to think the cops are going to solve this. Or maybe they'll call on the liberals to protect some land as as though the next conservative government can't just undo that as well. So, yeah, I think it's just, as you know, a theme that resonates throughout all of our shows. Like both Santiago and I are socialists and advocate for anti-capitalist solutions. I think we need to stick to that, too. Resistance and disruption is the only thing that would change this pattern or the expropriation of some of these companies. Honestly, it's very radical and likely not politically feasible. But if we're actually talking about finding a solution, yeah, it's the end of the profiteering off homes. And, and that would be a real wake up call for people. But that is one of the most fundamental tendons that has to happen because when you start looking at shelter as something to trade or invest in you've changed your mentality completely in my mind there's there's a piece missing there right you're not seeing the larger picture yet so people need to get there how far have we really come from feudalism like when i when i look at this it's i feel like we, I, this this doesn't look that different from feudalism to me Right. There's, no, there's many arguments to be had that that was just a shift of a system, a redesigning of a system still done by the upper class, still to mostly maintain their ownership of land and their concentration of resources, but done under the guise of this wonderful democracy that we all love to protect and and think that it's our savior. Right. So they gave us democracy so that we would stop taking their heads off when they starved us from our lands. And like we, we, we know that the world isn't in a great place right now, economically speaking. We know that struggles economically are happening on all corners. But we can nowhere are we seeing this kind of housing crisis. What we're seeing here is is really an anomaly in terms of the global housing market. We don't have to look within Canada for solutions. We can see why we have to start asking ourselves, why are we doing so much worse? And what is it that other cities that actually function around the world have done? And why is it that there's never the things we need in Toronto, for example, I mean, this is happening all across the country, but I'm going to use Toronto as the example. 
how come Toronto, a city that's such an economic center, a financial hub, how come it can't do the things that major cities across the world do? How come we can't build transit? How come we cannot build enough sustainable, affordable housing? How come we cannot... Like if all, all, all of the things, like how come we food is not affordable? How come we can't have affordable internet? How can, all of these things. This is a problem that's unique to us. Why is it that comparable cities of comparable sizes of comparable economic powers around the world can do it? How come Barcelona can do it and we can't do it? I know why, but <laughs> those are the questions we need to ask. That is a wrap on another episode of Blueprints of Disruption. Thank you for joining us. Also, a very big thank you to the producer of our show, Santiago Halu Quintero. Blueprints of Disruption is an independent production operated cooperatively. You can follow us on Twitter at BP of Disruption. If you'd like to help us continue disrupting the status quo, please share our content. And if you have the means, consider becoming a patron. Not only does our support come from the progressive community, so does our content. So reach out to us and let us know what or who we should be amplifying. So until next time, keep disrupting.